Today we're starting something new, Power for Living. Power for Living. And uh, we'll start a new series in the book of Acts. You just saw the introduction there. That's only the first segment of the book of Acts. We're going to go to chapter 12, God willing, in the next uh, eight weeks or so. Um, generally, I find myself more and more motivated. I've always been this way, and I wonder if you are too. I'm motivated to do things, especially when I understand the why behind it. Did you ever have a parent who used to say to you when you said, why? Why? And they would say back to you, because I said so. I mentioned that a few weeks ago, and while that's right and true, and I think should be enough for a lot of us and our kids, it isn't enough. And um, if we want kids to submit to our authority, then because they said so was enough. If we want them to understand and own our convictions, we explain why. And I, I am motivated by that. I'm motivated by understanding why I'm doing something. In fact, I remember, oh, it's too long of a story. We've got to hurry up. Is it okay if I don't riff a story? First time ever. I know, I heard that. I heard that. Um, in between Sunday worship services, right? You and I are together here on a Sunday morning, and then next Sunday morning's coming, and it, it's coming fast. But in between, here's a question that I think is important for us to, to ask, and that is, what are the disciples of Jesus? What are people who are following Jesus supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing between Sundays? Um, we spend hours together gathering every Sunday morning. And for a lot of us, we don't just spend hours gathering on Sunday mornings for a year. We have done it and are planning to do this gathering for years and years and years. And um, it's so vital for us to understand why are we doing this? Why are we together? Why are we spending time? And even if you're preparing to serve on a team on Sundays or you already are executing on that team with your team, it's even more time. Why are we doing that? For a lot of people, this gathering, attending this gathering is just habit. I grew up doing it. I've always done it. I've actually never asked the question why. I hope I haven't, <laughs> I hope I haven't knocked you off your habit by saying, why are you doing this? But we've always done it. In fact, some of us might say, I've never, I never haven't done it. So I'm just here. Other people might say, well, it's because, and I've heard this from people, they say, when I'm there, there are times where I really kind of get the chills and I feel connected to God. And in some cases, people tell me, I feel connected to my grandma who prayed me into church. And, you know, I used to go to church with my grandmother, my grandfather, my father, my mother, and they're no longer with me. But when I'm there, I feel more connected to them. I feel the feels. And the reason they want to gather together on Sunday morning is to... Um, perhaps feel a little bit better about their life. And some of them say, I need to get my life on track. I need to feel better about how my life is going. That's why I'm gathering on Sundays. And still other people, it's kind of a lottery decision. And what do I mean by that? Some people gather together on Sundays because they need something from God. And by coming and gathering at a Sunday morning service, what they're hoping to do is they're hoping to do that enough that God gives them what they need. God enhances their life. God provides what they're asking for. Somehow it's a kind of a lottery transaction where you just, if you buy enough tickets and you play the lottery enough, you attend enough church services, God notices and cha-ching, you cash in one day and God breaks through, gives you something. You did your part and you just give him time to do his part. 
Um, a lot of people feel like they're more likely to get something they need and want from God if they keep on going to church. Well, the book of Acts helps us understand some significant questions, starting with why are we the church? Why are we gathering now and why are we the church? Why are we a part of something like this? Um, and we see in the book of Acts that we're a part of the explosive Holy, uh, Holy Spirit expansion of God's kingdom. And another question is, what are we supposed to be doing? And the book of Acts answers the question, what are we supposed to be doing? And we'll see vividly even today that it is this, living as witnesses. Another question that's asked is, how are we supposed to do it? And the answer to the question shows up nice and quick in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're supposed to do it by the power of the Spirit. And so those three questions help us kind of get our mind around the book of Acts. Today, specifically, we'll be focusing on this. Jesus promised His followers, you and I who are following Jesus, um, each one of us and every one of us, and He has promised us the power that they need, those followers, to live their lives on mission or on a mission or on His mission doing His work for His purposes and being sure that we're doing it with His power. Through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, followers um, in, the, in, in the book of Acts, there was this reliable witness of the apostles who followed Jesus and, and um, God gives them everything they need to obey Jesus' command to go and share and show Jesus. Everything they need has been given by God. And they do that to the end of the earth. So, who wrote to the book of Acts? And why was the book of Acts written? We see here um, that's answered in the very early stages. The book of Acts is a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke wrote it. He gets done finishing the gospel of Luke and then keeps on writing. And we see here, he says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. So what is Luke doing? Luke is following Jesus and he's documenting who Jesus is so that everybody, Theophilus included, will believe that everything that they've heard is true. And then he continues to write, and as he writes here, we see some extra. He writes everything about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is followed by Luke and documented by Luke. Then Luke starts to document Jesus' followers. And he starts to document the things that the followers are doing in the power of the Holy Spirit to go into the world, to announce the good news, expand His kingdom. And behind each event in the, Holy, in, in the book of Acts is a sovereign God who is overseeing the transformation of the world and who is doing it through Jesus, then through Jesus' followers, all of them by the power of the Holy Spirit. They give birth to the church. Uh, the, the God uh, births the church through the power of the Spirit. Then, of course, He ex, uh, shapes His church. Then He uses His church. And then He continues to grow His church. For 40 days, something unique happened. And we see it here. During the 40 days after, He suffered and died, right? So Jesus has already suffered. He's already died. Then He's no longer in the tomb. And for 40 days, something happens. He appears to the apostles. Scripture says... Um, there are places where we learn that he appeared to over 500 people after he had already been crucified. Historians write about that, not just the gospel writers. Then he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Not a ghost, 
not a aberration. Is that a word? Aberration? Anybody who knows English, give me a nod on that. Good, thank you. And then he talked to these particular followers about the kingdom of God. So Jesus appears. He reminds them and proves to them that he's living. And he starts to talk to them about the kingdom of God. And we see this documented here in the book of Acts by the author Luke, who's a a detail-oriented physician. Once... When Jesus was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. So the Father is going to send a gift. The Father in heaven is going to send them a gift. And this gift has been promised. And if you're a Bible nerd, you can easily go back to Isaiah 32, Ezekiel 36, and Joel chapter 2, and you can read about the promise in the words of the prophets centuries before. And now, here we see... Uh, Luke writing that Jesus said, hey, listen, I want you to go somewhere special because when you get there, all that's been promised and prophesied in the years past by the prophets of the Father in heaven, this promised gift is now about to arrive. Here it comes. And we see this beautiful picture. Well, what's going to happen here? John, baptized with water, but in just a few days, this is the promised gift, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so, it's shown here how the ascension of Jesus brought on the uh, coming of the Spirit, which led to the birth and growth of the local church. So, um, I came across something recently, discovered, this, this was, to me, was, blew my mind. Blew my mind to learn that in the world, this is according to Pew Research, there is over, in, in, in the year 2020, it's estimated that the worldwide population is 7.7 billion people. That didn't blow my mind. You know what blew my mind? Is that of the world's 7.7 billion people, 33% of, them, 33% of them consider themselves or categorize themselves as Christians. So, um, of course, this, it, it won't be necessary to dig down and ask ourselves, are they Christians, right? But what I'm hoping that really what landed with me is that 33% of the world categorizes themselves as Christians. And from centuries ago, this leader, Jesus, who begins this Christian movement, and all these centuries later, 33% of the world's population still says, I'm one. How does that happen? Can you imagine the infinite number of religious teachers and rulers and religions and sects and um, uh, little factions of religious teachers and rulers that have sprung up over the centuries. I mean, how many do you think that is? Thousands of them? And still to this day, there is one that prevails on and on and on and on. And it makes me ask this question, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? How did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. We le- learn this in the book of Acts right off the bat, right out of the gate. Jesus' followers were given by himself. Uh, the Father gives it to Jesus. Jesus extends that on to his followers. And then the same power that's, um, that's animating and empowering Jesus now is empowering his followers. And Jesus says, here's a mission. It's my mission. And here's a power. It's my power. And these followers go on and continue to expand and multiply the kingdom for centuries. And we're here sitting together because of this mission right here that was given to Jesus' followers. And on and on and on it went for centuries. 
And so in the book of Jude, side note, in the book of Jude, um, it goes like this. We've been given this faith. It's been passed on from the fathers who, who um, were kind of in, in inspired by God. They have this faith in, in one creator, and then eventually it's passed on to Jesus. It's passed on to the apostles, to the church, and so on. And, and in Jude, it says, just stick with that. Don't make versions up on your own. Don't dilute it and change it and distort it and, you know, let it be what it always was. And where does that lead? It leads us to discover that following Jesus is life-altering. It's life-threatening. It is, for the apostles at the time, do you know that it was, it was life-ending, right? I don't know about you, but I hear those words. I'm like, I hear the word um, life-altering. I say, yes. Sign me up. I want my life to be altered. Then I hear, it's life-threatening. I'm like, I guess, maybe, if need be. Then I get to the life-ending, and I'm like, you probably have the wrong, you do, you have the wrong person. There's someone else who probably is willing to let their life end. But for the apostles, life-altering, completely life-threatening, and it eventually led to a life-ending faith of their own, following Jesus. Now, here's why. Um, one of the reasons why it led to the end is because, and one of the reasons why we're still living this faith out today is because their lives were so empowered. They were uniquely empowered. They were very powerful. But this has been my experience at times with the Christian faith, and I wonder if you've ever thought this. These people were special. These apostles were unique. There was no one really like them since them. It's only them, and since then, not, not, it's not really the same. In fact, I might say for myself, for my Christian faith life, my Christian life kind of, it's at mostly, if I'm honest, well, maybe at times, it's bland or boring. It, it, at least, it's blah. I don't know that there was power and fire and, uh, you know, persecution and so on in my life. Generally, I find myself in a Christian life. I wonder if you've ever thought this. My Christian life following Jesus is good, not always great. But it's also... I've noticed boring, bland, and blah. And there's reasons why this happens. Um, some people might describe it this way. I pray, but sometimes I wonder while I'm praying if anyone's even listening. When I'm praying, am I talking to the wall? I've heard people say I talk, and I just feel like the words come back down from the ceiling. I'm like, well, stop talking like this. I'm kidding. But they, they say, I, I, it's like, I, these words come out, but is anybody really listening? I don't know if they are. I don't know if God hears what I'm saying. And then I come across other people who feel this way. I'm reading the Bible, but I've, I'm less and less interested at times. I don't understand what I'm reading. I'm trying to get into it. I know I'm supposed to. I'm even using the Bible Project app, and I'm like, I'm not sure this is as interesting to me as I would hope. And then there's still other people, and these people are attending church services, but not really present, watching the clock, turning, uh, um, turning their mind off or letting their mind wander and present in person, which, by the way, is so much better than not, right? Putting ourselves in a position for God to do something unique during the week. But at the same time, if you want to be present and find yourself not really present, that is so discouraging. It is so hard to process that. And then lastly, there's someone 
ask me about my faith. And I often have no idea what I'm going to say. Um, some of us say, I'm actually a little low-key afraid that someone will ask me about my faith. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to tell somebody. Um, I remember when I was asked about this in high school, someone, someone brought up, uh, one of my friends brought up that they go to these field parties and never see me. Um, they're getting in trouble with people and I'm not getting in trouble with them. Um, made some comment about seeming so, I don't know what he said, some, some comment about seeming so at peace or happy or whatever. And then he says, so what's with you, Williams? And I was like freaking out. In a split second, I was in a panic thinking to myself, just get this over with. So, I, so I, the, only, the first thing that came to my mind was, I mean, I, I go to church. And then he says back to me, well, that's weird. So do I. It's like, dang it. Dang it. What a fool. And as much as we want to, sometimes it's difficult to process that someone might ask us about our faith. And the reason is because we consider ourselves in a Christian faith. It's a little bit bland, boring, and blah. And some of us think that it hasn't even changed our family, right? My family is really all disconnected and upside down at times. And, um, you know, it's, at times we've had these experiences with church families where, like, why is my church so lame? I wish there was more to it. I wish I felt better about inviting other people. I wish I felt better about attending. Uh, my church is missing something. Not exactly sure all the time what it is, but it's missing something. Why so boring, bland, and blah? I have an opinion about this. Can I share you my opinion? I don't necessarily, I'm not going to give you scripture and verse because I don't think I would be able to do that, but in my, I think that there's a reason for this. Now, here's my opinion. There's, it's probably, it's not just one thing, but it's a combination of things, but let me summarize what my opinion is, and, and here's why. Because I believe that we have distorted the what and abandoned the how of our life of faith. That's my opinion. My opinion is that we have a what we're supposed to do it, and we have a how we're supposed to do it, and we have found a way through our own filters to kind of distort it and abandon it, distort it and abandon it. Our life, our family, our church life of faith, in my opinion, is completely, and in most cases, wholeheartedly devoted to our own comfort and convenience. Easier, more comfortable, more convenient. And at times, our life mission is so small and so limited that we can fuel, this, this is going to sound a little crazy, but we can fuel the entire operation on Dunkin' Donuts. That's how I know. I mean, how does America run, everybody? Let me hear you. Thank you. Imagine, imagine a life that is so limited and so small that I feel like I can get it all done successfully if I just get my shot of caffeine or my little dose of whatever. And here's what I'm trying to say. It's time to upgrade your coffee. I'm just kidding. It's not, it's not what I'm trying to say. The book of Acts helps us and it exposes us a little bit that there, it presents to us that there is a likely reason that, it, it, that our life feels the way it feels. And it's because, it's simple, it's because my life, my family, my life and mission among the church family is too comfort-focused. 
our mission is so small and so limited, comfort, convenience, that we find ourselves just being able to live it with some extra caffeine or a little extra jolt of whatever gets us going. Does that make sense? And if this is my power, if caffeine is my power to do my life, not only is the caffeine not enough, my life mission's not enough. My focus is not enough. My purpose is not enough. And it's my hope that you can sense my heart on this. We have distorted the what and abandoned the how of our life on faith. Notice I didn't write in here your life on faith. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about every one of us finding ourselves in a situation where God's given us a what and a how and we've distorted it and abandoned it to do our own thing. And one of the reasons why churches get like this is because they become hyper-issue-centered. They center, their lot, they center the entire church around an issue. And the issue is a noble issue. The issue might even be a biblical issue. The issue that they're centered around might even be true. But there are so many ways in which churches become issue-centered. We continue to say we're a gospel-centered church so that we don't eventually find ourselves becoming an issue-centered church. What is our church about? It's about the gospel. It transforms and it advances. It moves, it grows, it heals, it does, it does amazing work. And what is the gospel? The good news of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And yet we, in churches, get so centered on uh, uh, issues, we find ourselves literally being all about partisan politics at times, especially during the election seasons, and, and our main goal is winning an election. Or we get hyper-focused on protecting protocols, where the leaders of the church are completely, 100% um, devoted to fighting the fight against or for church traditions. And those traditions are the center, they are the middle, they're the focus. And uh, I have a pastor friend of mine who, who lived this, a pastor friend of mine who um, was suffering through a church split. What is a church split? If you're new to the church, it means that some people believe this and some people believe that and eventually starts to fragment the church and there's a church split over one issue or another. And my friend was suffering through a church split over the fact that someone decided to remove the flags that were on the platform and replace it with a screen to project lyrics. And should that issue create some conversations? Sure. Should that issue create even some tensions about how important it is to either, I mean, some of you don't know this, but churches, for the most part, uh, I mean, a lot of churches have two flags, right? American flag, Christian flag, and um, when those changes are made, uh, oftentimes there's two sides that rise up. We want projection for lyrics so we can sing along, and we have another side that rises up and says, well, we've had that there, and it ought to be there, and here's the reasons it ought to be there. And my friend of mine, his church is fragmented and diminished and broken in half over maintaining that tradition. Issue-centered, getting those protocols. I remember experiencing myself um, what it looks like when somebody in the church family or, or, or church leaders are hyper-focused on pet peeves and preferences. In a midweek service, we had a joint service a long, long time ago. We had a joint service, um, and we were asked to bring all of our youth group kids into the midweek. By joint service, I mean adults and students in a midweek service, and there's a missionary. Missionary is there. We have the whole auditorium full of youth group kids, smattering of adults during the midweek, but a whole bunch of youth group kids. Missionary stops in the middle of the service. 
and it starts pointing out towards the students. Immediately as a youth pastor, my stomach starts to turn and now it's like nothing good is going to come of this. I can already tell. And he starts calling out this one dude in the youth group. He's got a hat on. Hey, buddy. I won't give you what he said, but on and on he goes about taking his hat off. I don't know who you think you are coming to this building. You wear your hat. You think you're all whatever. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And it's a gut punch. You know why it's a gut punch? Because this is the kid just recently released from jail, connected to some of us in the church leadership. And we're like, man, we would love to see you. And oh, no one wants me there. No one's going to talk to me. No, no, no. Seriously, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. No, you're, you're not going to be fine because some missionary who is all hyped up on personal preferences and pet peeves, has an issue with this boy wearing a... The 18-year-old kid wearing a hat who's there to hear a missionary. If I'm the missionary, I don't mean to come off self-righteous, but I'm the missionary, I'm pretty pumped that there's a kid there. Right? You know what I'm saying? I'm glad there's anybody there listening to me, to be honest. How does a church get like that? You're hyper-focused on pet peeves and personal preferences. And then this platform becomes a way to kind of advance them. And there's all kinds of personal preferences and pet peeves. And you know what it does to a church? Divides it, fragments it. It turns everybody against everybody. And you know that there were people in our church family after that happened who were like, finally, finally somebody has the guts to tell these kids take their hats off. And I was like, I don't know that that was the reaction. I was suspecting. I didn't have that reaction. We were mortified that this person was confronted. Anyways, you know what that leads to? Personal preferences and pet peeves. Protecting traditions and protocols. Or um, somebody who is uh, hyper a church that's hyper-focused on partisan politics. Let me tell you, the outcome of that, the outcome of that is a Christian faith that's boring and blah and bland. It's like, it, well, it's dramatic, right, on Sundays, but it's generally boring and blah and bland. So the book of Acts compels us and says Jesus has a supreme mission. And this supreme mission requires something important. Look at this. But you will receive power. This is Jesus talking to his followers, his disciples, who are the apostles of his church. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I want to focus on something here really quickly. I want to focus on this word here, power to be my witnesses the ends of, to the ends of the earth. We have the power to become the to the ends of the earth people. Jerusalem um, was reached. Samaria reached. Uh, Judea, Samaria reached. Now, here in our culture and now in our context, we are the to the ends of the earth people. And to reach and to be a part of this mission, we're going to need power that God alone gives us. And we are tasked with telling our personal Jesus story. And when we get hyped up with the focus to tell our personal Jesus story to whomever, right? When we do, this mission will take us, like Hannah, it'll take us overseas. It'll at least take us across the street, and perhaps it'll take us somewhere. But after you see Jesus, after you meet Jesus, after you trust Jesus, there is a mission that he gives you. And he says, your life purpose and mission is now going to be about making disciples of all nations, including our own, and to your end of the earth. How do we do that? Well, we tell our story about Jesus. And this mission is so massive. This mission is so life-consuming 
that we would need more than willpower and more than self-discipline and more than a cup of Dunkin'. We would need the power that comes from heaven to do heaven's work. And if we don't need heaven's power to do our work, can I come to the conclusion I'm not doing heaven's work? I'm on, if, if I'm not on God's mission, if I'm living my life on my mission, I don't need supernatural power. I don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to compel me. I just need a good night's sleep, some physical activity, eat well, and make sure I got my um, whole bean coffees ground up just the way I like them. And then you add water. It's not just the ground beans, right? You brew it. So, we don't have that power. If we don't have that power, we find ourselves becoming either incredibly self-reliant um, or we find ourselves being incredibly silent and living a life for ourselves, by ourselves, completely doted, devoted to convenience and comfort. And when we have that power, there's a difference. There's a difference when we have this Holy Spirit power, and it is that we know. We may not feel anything, but we know that we will be able to act with boldness and courage. God will empower us to do that boldly and courageously. We, knowing, uh, we will have a knowing in our hearts and deep in our bones we'll have a knowing that the Spirit's power is at work in us to help us to speak, to share and to show and to tell our Jesus story. Who is Jesus to me? How has He brought hope and joy and freedom to me? And we do that. When we do that, we bring glory to, to God, to, to Jesus. And... Um, we know this. Life is complex. Life is hard. And for a lot of people, there are some dark patches that are hard to get out of, right? And when you think about living for God's mission, you're like, listen, I would do that, Pastor, but my mission's been rough. And I've needed more than a cup of coffee to manage the whole thing. I mean, I have, had, I have been through it, and it has been devastating. And to be honest with you, my life focus and my life mission is just to kind of survive, to make it, to get to the next day, to not abandon my faith. And we um, recognize that, that life is like that. But there's something extra special about being one of Jesus' disciples. Something extra special. Jesus' followers offer a contrasting hope to heartache. In the heartache that is our world, there is a Jesus, Jesus follower empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they are able to offer hope in the middle of the heartache. Look at this. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud. So Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to be empowered. You're going to be full. You're going to be my witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. This is going to go on and on and on. I'm going to expand my kingdom. My whole life is going to continue on and on. And after he said this, taken up in a cloud. While they were watching, and, and they could no longer see him. He had vanished and disappeared. And as they strained to see him rising into the heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Uh, I mean, I know why. <laughs> I know why they're doing that. Jesus has been taken from you. He's into heaven. But someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. He is going to appear in the same way that he disappeared. 
So Jesus ends up in heaven. God takes him up. This is this ascension now. He's exalted as king of the world. He becomes the king over all kings. He becomes the Lord over all lords. And he is established on the right hand of the Father. While he incarnated, Jesus came to earth as a little tiny baby. And now, as he in his second coming, he's not going to come as a little baby. He's going to come with the Lord's, uh, with an army of angels. And he is going to come in power, supreme authority, and he is going to rule and reign forever. That's the second coming. That's how we have hope together that he is going to return to claim his church, to curse the head of his, to crush the head of his enemy once and for all. No more suffering, no more tears, no more separation. All the things that hurt you and ail you, all your heartache. I love how this is put in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it all comes untrue. And eventually, that's our hope, right? And that's in contrast to our heartache. And heartache, we may think, is hurting, but heartache, there's some heartache that's even more than that, and that is permanent death and separation. Imagine the heartache of not just having a hard time on earth while we live. Imagine the heartache of the afterlife is death and separation from God for eternity. Not a short time, but forever. And so, that brings us to Judas. Judas, you know, I've come across uh, these beautiful Bible names. You know what name I've never come across when I'm meeting your kids? Judas. I've noticed that we've avoided two very, very important names in the Bible. I've never met a little one named Judas. Oh, little Judas, hi. I'm praying for you. <laughs> praying for you. And I've also never come across the, the name Jesus, you know, in our culture. It's just... We're just avoiding it. You know what I'm saying? It makes sense to me. So Judas, listen to this. This is, um, this is being recorded in the book of Acts. And um, here we see something pretty significant. Judas was one of us. He shared in the ministry with us. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery, right? So if you don't know this, uh, Judas had betrayed Jesus, 30 uh, coins. He had betrayed him. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out to all his attendants, his intestines. Seriously, there are times where I think we do not need Netflix. We don't need feature films. We need to get ourselves in the Bible for all the gore we could ever want. So, a couple different um, narratives about Judas's death, suicide. Then you got this one here. Um, one of them hanging, one of them bursting open. Um, some of the commentators say it's actually an account of the same thing. One is the first part of his death and the other is the second part of what actually happened to him after he hung himself. Either way, what we're supposed to see is the effect of Satan's control over Judas, that it leads to death and separation. That in fact, um, it says Judas was one of us. Judas shared in the ministry with us. He knew Jesus, was with Jesus, was walking with Jesus, and somehow Judas was persuaded that the wealth of the world, that the wealth and status that the world offered was more important than the wealth that he was going to have and enjoy and inherit from Jesus forever. And he traded it. And we're supposed to see here in the book of Acts that when that trade is made, people end up like Judas. Do they end up killing themselves and spilling all over for everybody to see and then naming a field after them so everybody knows forever that Judas died right here at his own peril? No, that's of course not. But instead, we find other ways 
to live for ourselves and then experience the work of, uh, of the enemy, which in the Scripture is called the work of the enemy is stealing from us and killing us and destroying our lives. And so the story goes on. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name, Akeldama, which means field of blood. So they would remember Judas is in the field of blood. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Judas has deserted us, and he has gone where he belongs. Judas, deservingly and permanently separated from God, descended into death after deserting Jesus. And we see the difference between people who are following Jesus and people who are rebelling at, uh, and rejecting Jesus. And so, our church's mission is to help people avoid finding themselves in a... It, dead and separated from the Father in heaven. Not to have uh, um, this life-altering heartache. And so instead, the church sometimes has devoted itself to being careful that we want to make sure that nobody's listening to popular music, uh, that the church has an agreeable preacher, that um, all of the people who are attending church are out in the world being nice to everybody and and, and by the way, on your way out, grab some of our merch because it's super cool to wear. Anything wrong with that? Only if it's exchanged for this incredible hardship and heartache that's going on in the world when we have the ability to offer hope, which is we have a Jesus story that I want to tell you. And I'm not going to tell you in my power. I'm going to tell you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Judas throws it all away. And he throws it all away and trades it all in. And the same is true for us. Anytime that we make any created thing a higher priority than Jesus himself, our 30 pieces of silver may not be cash money. It may be something else. Ours might be comfort and convenience. Ours might be power and status. Ours might be really our living for our own glory, our own independence separate from God, living for the created thing instead of the creator. So what can we do now? Real quick, we can do something that forces you to depend on the Holy Spirit power, not yours. And this is really about hearing what the Holy Spirit tells you. How does this look for you? Do something that forces you to depend on the Holy Spirit power, not your own, not our own power, right? Uh, so I take a little self-assessment, and I think to myself, am I disinterested? Am I generally apathetic? I had a reaction to watching the Jesus Revolution movie. I had three really severe reactions. One of my reactions was I was overwhelmed during and after this movie with a sense of apathy. No, 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 no. It's not, that's not the way I put it. I was overwhelmed with an awareness, an alertness to my own apathy and troubled by that deeply, emotionally troubled by that. And I felt the Holy Spirit um, just provoking me that... Um, He's at work in me. And am I, as I assess, am I listless in my faith? My, do I have apathy towards Jesus, bored by Christianity? It's a sign of something serious. I'm not doing the very thing Jesus commissioned me to do. It's a sign of something serious that I, I am now in a position where I need to receive the Holy Spirit power to be His witness, not to the whole world, right, but to my end of the earth, my classmate, teammate, my neighbor, my coworker, my child, my parent, my roommate, my spouse. And that's my end of the earth that Jesus makes it possible 
for us. And secondly, let your hope lift you out of your heartache. I know it's not that easy. I know it doesn't take just one decision or one day or one message on a Sunday morning. But there is hope that because of the return of Jesus, what you are suffering with in your heartache right now is temporary, but your future joy is eternal. Your future joy is forever. And it helps us, I think, lift us out of heartache when we know we're not suffering forever. This is not going to go on forever. This is something that's going to be temporary and it's going to end. And it's going to end by, by some, uh, in some cases, it's going to end with the return of Jesus. And he's going to come back just the way that he left in an instant. And your heart might be aching. It might be aching for you. It might be aching for someone else. And here's a life-changing hope. Your Jesus is returning, and your heart will be healed. And eternally, you and Jesus will go on and on forever. No death, no separation, and that's our hope, and that's our joy. And we get to tell the Judases in the world, we get to say we've had a Jesus experience ourselves. Next to you, you've got some elements, and those elements are the symbols that we use to represent our communion. And this helps us to remember, this helps us to remember what it is that Jesus has come and accomplished. And we're going to receive this communion together and We pray that um, you sense God's Holy Spirit power not just to live on His mission, but His Holy Spirit power to open those elements. Sometimes we need divine power to figure out how to get those open. But as you separate those two and just prepare your heart, we're going to pray together, sing together, and, and you don't have to belong to our church to receive communion with us. You don't have to belong to this church. You don't have to attend this church regularly but you do have to belong to Jesus. It is true that before you uh, participate with us here that you would need to have placed your trust in Jesus, that you treasure Him, that your um, trust is not rooted in your work for Jesus, but your trust is rooted in His work on your behalf. His life lived for death died in your place. And then you say, I, I trust that. I'm not trusting myself. I'm not trying to justify myself, save myself, make myself acceptable to God. If that's you and you have, that's called saving faith, we welcome you to join with us in communion today. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Would you receive that symbol of the broken body together today? In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you receive that symbol together? And church family, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to have some, we're going to sing another song together. And there's going to be a group of people up here. Some will be in the middle, some will be on the edges. And they have 
prepared themselves to pray with you, to pray with you, to leverage one of the joys of being together as a church family, and that is allowing somebody to pray with you and for you. They are not going to spend the time that you might need to help be counseled through something. They aren't going to spend the time necessarily to hear the whole story, but they do want to put their faith together with your faith and pray that God moves mountains. So specifically today, I would love to invite any of you who realize in some way, shape, or form today, maybe more than ever, you need to receive this Holy Spirit power to, to give you what you need to live on the mission that Jesus has commissioned you to live. That you uh, can no longer depend on your own power and you're open to receiving Holy Spirit power. And we want to pray with you. And secondly, we want to pray with anybody who is um, sensing that today is the day that you need someone to pray with you to receive God's healing that's offered to you through the hope of His return. You need God to intervene and bring healing to your heart. And no matter how He does it, you're open to it. You just say, God, I just need a touch from you. I need to be healed by you. And, and when we step forward and we step out and we join together with this church family who's willing to pray with you, all we're saying is we're a candidate for the intervention, the divine intervention of God because we can no longer do it on our own. My power has failed me. It's ended. So I need Holy Spirit power or I need God to heal some of the heartache and help me hope again. So while we're singing, some of you are going to do that. Others are going to be singing and then still others even praying. Would you join us as we do that together here while we sing and pray.